If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to James, the third chapter. We're continuing in our series in the book of James. Today we are talking about taming the tongue. Um, before we read it, just a reminder that today is Family Worship Sunday, which means the kids are here. So we're not afraid of sounds and chirps and noises and everything, but if it's easier uh, for you, the live stream is happening in the cafe. You can take your kids out there if that's any better. Um, so feel free at any point. Let's read James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small, small spark. The tongue, um, sorry, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord the Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is God's word. Thanks, Marshall. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jace. I'm on the pastoral team here at the church, if I haven't met you. It's nice to meet you. And yeah, again, um, I, quick little tidbit about me. I grew up um, in the LDS church in the heart of Utah. And so I love a ton of kids in the church running around. That's like, that's nostalgic for me. So if there's noise, bring it on. I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, kids can come color right here if they want. I do not care. Um, I'm just gonna jump right in. And actually, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna jump in, and then we're gonna make our way through this text. God, thank you so much for this day, for this room full of people, and thank you for all these kids. Um, thank you for the book of James. Thank you for chapter three. Uh, give us your Holy Spirit, and I pray for humility and courage to follow you. Amen. Um, okay, I'm gonna read this first verse, chapter three, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Okay. <laughs> it's a personal one for me today. Um, <laughs> um, actually, for over a year, I've had this verse written on my whiteboard at home. Um, I have a whiteboard in my study, and I wrote it at the top. Um, and it just never fails to shake me. Um, it's a verse that I've just asked God to embed into my soul. And... <laughs> Let me tell you, it'll put the fear of God right into you. So if any of you teach. Um, but as reverent as I get before James chapter three, I've also discovered just how awesome this chapter is. And here's the thing, it's not just for teachers. 
So I wanna take us all through it, and um, hopefully you can get something out of this. But So first we have this little warning um, that teachers that you get in this sentence, and then you get the next one, which says, for we all stumble in many ways. Um, and if anyone does not stumble um, in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So um, what is the connection between verse one and verse two? Um, not many of you should become teachers, and then, then you get this bit about stumbling. Um, the key is, how the person stumbles, the, the little ending there. He stumbles in what he says. So um, uh, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect. He's able to bridle his whole body. So we're thinking, okay, teachers do a lot of talking. And so we're talking about um, stumbling speech. Then you got this word perfect. And by now, hopefully by now, we're growing accustomed to this word in the book of James. Um, the idea is maturity or completion. And so um, it's the junior hire about ready to run her first 100-yard dash, but in her mind, she has this refined image of an Olympic athlete winning like a gold medal in the summer games, that picture of completion, full fruition of the journey. And so um, you have all these pieces. We're gonna put them all together here to try to line up the logic so you can see this. And then he says, um, he uses the word bridle. So it's um, not like wedding, but it's like horse vocabulary. It's a picture of something coming around an animal's face and then right on its mouth. And then he just cranks up the horse imagery in the next line from two to three. So put it all together. You have, um, for we stumble. Then read, read this next bit. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So the flow of thought is be ye warned, teachers. We all make mistakes, except for the perfect person. Well, what makes them perfect? Um, they bridle their whole body. And how do they do that? They put this thing over the mouth like a horse. They, and that's how they guide. That's how they, you guide the horse. So here's how James has, links this up for us. You have tongue and words is to man. as like the bit in the bridle is to the horse. Um, next slide. So it's a very basic picture here. Our words steer the trajectory of our lives, apparently. And this isn't actually the first time we've heard James talk about the um, impact of words. I just want to remind you, in chapter 1, you saw this. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Um, next one. If anyone thinks he's a religious, he is religious, does not bridle his tongue, you see the word there again, but deceives his heart, this person's religion, worthless. It's worthless. So just play out the image. Compared to the massive body of a horse, um, the bit and the bridle are just tiny. They're small in comparison. And this little face apparatus just has that power. And so there's this connection in James's mind from our words to our entire bodies, and somehow your speech is the way you guide your life, your entire life. And personally, it wasn't until recently when this finally started to click, and I've been teaching for a while. Um, but it became clear to me at the end of uh, last winter that I needed um, just like real professional help. Um, to work through all of my emotional and spiritual and psychological and relational baggage and trauma. Um, somehow the confluence of a global pandemic, societal upheaval, conflicts between like my family and then like my life of obligation and work and duty, responsibility, whatever, it all just reared its ugly head in temper and like a lack of patience and fears manifesting themselves, etc. And it all usually manifested itself sideways in toxic ways when my eldest refused to go to bed every night. That was when it all came out. 
And so I began taking steps to work through these things in prayer and continue to do so by the grace of God. And I also decided I really just need to go to therapy. I need a professional here. I need to talk to someone who loves Jesus and who's trained in exploring this stuff at a deeper level. And what I noticed pretty quickly was that my therapist had eyes to see all these paradigms through which I view the world and process the world that I didn't even know existed. I've known for a while that I'm a basket case, um, but he saw beyond those surface issues. He was able to expose why I think the way I think, the forces that have shaped me, for better or worse. Um, and so this is a buzzword right now, but he really began, to, I began to learn more about this idea of wounding messages in a new way. You've probably heard of this a little bit. The basic idea is that when we're kids, kids, when we're making our way in the world, we receive these wounding messages from time to time. And, and a lot of times from well-meaning adults, sometimes it's more sinister than that with the intention. But it's messages like, you're not good enough. It's your fault. This is your responsibility ex- exclusively. You should know better. You should do better. Um, you, you, who are you to question this? Who asked you? Your display of emotion or excited behavior in a church setting, it's unacceptable, whatever, Right? Um, throw a rock and you'll just hit someone who is in therapy or should be in therapy to work through all of these messages that they heard as a kid. And so here's my point. My eyes have been opened to the power of words. And what pushed me over the edge to finally get help was that it was my daughter at bedtime because bedtime's hard, right, kids? It's hard. (laughs) She's just working out what it means to be four. Um, But it was her, unfortunately, who was on the receiving end of this weird, sideways, unintended anger of her father. And hey now, God said, your words steer the course of life. Um, So kids who are listening out there in the cafe or in here, us, grownups in the room, I just want to say very cleanly and clearly, we love you. We cherish you. Watch how James develops this. He says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So James switches from a horse to a ship, and in doing so, watch this, he nuances the picture. So large, he says, but driven by strong winds. The implication here is that people are like this. We build these lives, you guys, that are like ships, And in doing so, we amass momentum. We are guided by strong winds. What are those? Status, family, friends. We amass community of all kinds, um, leadership, influence, money. These are the winds that push you along. And often those winds that blow our lives, they're just, they're really good things. They're fine. People have influence on us and change the trajectory of our lives. Circumstances happen. Circumstances beyond our control. And it's like wind in the sail, for better or worse. But nothing James said, is quite like the rudder, the tongue of the pilot. How many people have we seen just in the last five years in our country, let's limit it, crumble because of the words they've let leak from their mouths? One word, one sentence, whether tweeted or made in an interview or from the pulpit or in the dark when they thought no one was listening, but somehow it comes out. And when it does, it's like the captain shipwrecking his life onto a craggy reef. James says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Okay. (laughs) The word hell um, translates the Greek word Gehenna, 
um, which comes straight out of your Old Testament. It's the Valley of Hinnom in 2 Kings 23 in Jeremiah 7. You can go read about it. But it's this place outside Jerusalem where you burn all the junk, all the rubbish. And so it becomes a picture in the biblical imagination for condemnation and death. But notice how James uses this. What exactly sets the life on fire? Um, It's not just like some guy with a pitchfork out of hell. It's that small spark. Do you see this? Those words, it's the unbridled tongue. That's the fire. But a tongue like that finds its inspiration in Gehenna, as it were. So hold on to this for a second. We'll come back to it. You'll see again, actually, in this first mention of the phrase whole body. Um, Whole body, next slide. We ruin our lives with our words, (laughs) the way we speak what we say to others. We have the tongue and the body. But can I think of another way that the biblical authors talk about the concept of the whole body? It's not just the individual. Who is referred to as someone's body? It says the church. How did this passage start again? Be ye warned teachers. So the tongues of the whole body, i.e. the church, are its leaders, its speakers, its communicators. So they stain the whole body. This is a personal message. This is about... People that talk, right? Um, They stain the whole body. They set on fire the entire course of life of the flock. It's becoming, I don't know if you guys know this, but it's becoming its own podcast genre, the big pastor who blew up his church and hurt a bunch of people genre. Um, And it's overdue. It's the burnt out church or the, the burnt out church kid podcast who gets a bunch of people together to talk about how much trauma they endure because of corrupt teachers and leaders. It's so sad, but it's totally a thing. And so here I am, teaching from a stage like a big fool. (laughs) Just kidding. But seriously, with fear and trembling, I give this message, for real. Um, Scott McKnight quotes Daniel Doriani, and he says this. Teachers are especially vulnerable to failures of speech because their role demands that they speak so much. More words mean more errors. We, as we grow accustomed to public speaking, we can become careless, guilty, When asked to offer an opinion, we tend to comply, guilty. And if we have scant qualifications and little factual basis, oh my word, I am heartily ashamed and guilty. Um, That's how we answer. Humor is a dangerous gift, guilty. It pleases the crowd, but can easily wound or mislead. Too many laughs come at someone else's expense. Yikes. Let's keep going. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame that tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. My gosh. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Okay, taming and subduing beasts, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures, mention of humans made in God's likeness, and mention of blessing and cursing. What story does James have in mind here? This is the very beginning, Genesis. So real quick, get it in your head. God established this garden in which he put his image bearers, that is humanity made both male and female, to rule, subdue, have dominion. Genesis takes the time to note, real quick, he takes the time to note that part of that dominion includes animals. And the language of beasts of the field is used. You'll remember that from Genesis 1 and 2. But then... Genesis 1 and 2 gives way to Genesis 3, and another creature shows up. It's the serpent. And do you know what the serpent is specifically called? He's called a beast of the field. 
upon his arrival in Genesis 3. It's a literary technique, and it signals to you, the reader, that there is already an implied relationship between humanity and this thing. Already in motion, what role were humans supposed to play in relationship to the beasts of the field? Oh, yeah, they were supposed to rule over them. So, so obviously the story is dense and the significant imagery is, has some deeper meaning. But the point is this, no matter what that thing says, no matter what it does, you are my image bearers. And to you, I give the dignity of ruling, of being the master, not by being mastered by that beast of the field. Okay? But we know how the story goes. Are they able to tame the snake? No. So let's ponder, watch this, ponder James's words again and his interesting choice of vocabulary in light of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. No human being can tame what? The tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Intriguing. Are we talking about a snake? Deadly evil and poison? Or are we talking about the tongue? Do you see the overlap here? So it's long been noticed that James is writing in the same way as Israel's sages, his, their wisdom leaders, the wisdom tradition. So look for a moment at how much James sounds like the author of Proverbs. Next slide. We're not gonna do all of these. I, we don't have time, but I just picked a couple. I just started going through Proverbs and collecting. Um, you can look at, uh, yeah, we'll go to the next slide. There's a bunch. Go to the next slide. And let's look at... Um, Proverbs 16, this one's good. A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. It's like, oh, that sounds like James. Look at Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death, life, and eating fruit. Does this sound like anything? <laughs> so you can see clearly how James is standing in a long line of Israel's wisdom tradition and like Jesus, he thinks back on his scriptures and then he puts all the pieces together. Like them, he takes one more step back and reflects on the whole story which began in the garden. And you know what the tongue is like? It's like a beast in a garden that couldn't be tamed by humans. A restless evil full of deadly poison. Here's what I don't wanna miss. Apparently, for James, there is a strong connection, a relationship between our words and the schemes of a serpent. And that freaks me out. It's like James draws a line from the serpent to the untamed tongue, seen specifically in the way they liked people curse other image bearers. They've got snake-like mouths, and they're portrayed as like the snake, full of deadly poison. Like he's pulling, this is, this is really intense. But this idea did not originate with James. He didn't come up with it. It didn't originate in Proverbs. Pro the book of Proverbs didn't come up with it. It showed up actually seconds after the serpent entered onto the scene when God comes and curses the snake. Note, he does not curse the male or the female, he curses the snake. And this is what he says. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life is a picture of shame. Then he says, I will put enmity, conflict, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. Notice this last little stanza of the poem here. The picture is one of conflict. So who is the you in the context of the poem, class? My Monday night classers, here we go. Who is the you in the context of the poem? So I, yeah, good. I, God, will put conflict between you, serpent, and the woman. 
lightning symbolizes conflict. You try to figure out what symbol to use for that. Okay, so listen up, serpent. You're preying on humanity. You have your sights set on my image bearers, but you can't just have them. So there's gonna be conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So real quick, the Hebrew word for offspring is zerah. Um, it's also the word for seed. And it, you, can, you can use it as an agricultural term or you can use it as like offspring. So seed in English is as interesting as zerah is in Hebrew because it can refer to a singular seed, meaning one child or many part in the graphic language, but like male seed produces seed, and a woman's seed can refer to her many children. So the poem presents us with a little riddle because we get a generational picture. You ready for this? There, there will be conflict between you, serpent, and the woman, but then between your seed and her seed. Do you get this idea? So again, the story has generations in mind. It's a window into the future. This is the first explicit prophecy in the Bible, and it shows up in the third chapter, right off the bat. So the question becomes, what are we talking about? We easily can picture a woman and her great-grandchildren, but like, what of the other side? Is the Bible predicting conflict between children and baby snakes and great-grandpa snake? <laughs> so um, it was my professor, Tim Mackey, who's the head of the Bible Project, who first showed this to me over a decade ago, and this is why I did what I did in school. It altered the way. I totally read the Bible. Um, because the, the biblical narrative is so interested in answering these questions that they just set up for you. We're not talking about baby snakes. And I think that's not a surprise to anyone. But what might be a shock to some of you is that we're not even talking about demons or something. Um, though that's not to say the demonic isn't real. It is very real and plays an integral part in the conflict to come. But the point of Genesis is that if we're watching the narrative really closely, what we discover is that each generation is faced with a choice, a temptation, which always echoes the same moment in the garden. So remember Cain and Abel, they're the they are the seed of the woman. Cain and Abel, they're the next generation. God talks to Cain, and you know what he tells him? Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must what? So we have this crouching animal language of like a beast in the field ready to pounce. But he's supposed to what? Tame that thing, rule it. And it's right, it's right before he commits murder. And so is it a beast though? Genesis four does not say a beast. Gen Cain and Abel's story doesn't. Genesis three, it was, it was a serpent. But in Genesis four, what is it? It's just called sin. So it's the same thing, but it's something else. And this is par for the biblical course. The Bible wants you to learn how to process these things as intricately connected. And related is, is sin, to sin is to somehow participate and come under the rule of an outside regime of deception and evil, the serpent's scheme, the one that vandalizes God's shalom. They're two sides of the same coin. And all of that sits in contrast to the first commission that was given to humanity's job, which was to rule alongside God and tame the beast. So when the voice comes, we either partner with it, let's call it the serpent, let's also call it sin, let's also call it spiritual evil, or we partner with God in ruling over it. But how does Cain do? You see, when he kills his brother, he chose to listen to the serpent and to sin, <clears throat> and he begins a long line of evildoers who start to follow in his footsteps. You can read about that at the end of Genesis chapter four. And it gets ugly. Their, people are described as very snaky in the Bible. Their tongues and words are forked. 
and poisonous. Um, so watch this. Watch how John, in his epistle, reflects on this moment. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is, look, of the devil. What does that mean? Well, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, you see this seed language? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's what? Seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are what? Children of the devil. Who is he calling the seed of the devil? People. How did he get that idea? Watch. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Loving brothers. Keep reading. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We shouldn't be like Cain. You could see him reflecting on the story. Who was evil, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Good grief. So let's just think about this for a second. What does it mean that the serpent will have seed and that the woman will have seed? That there will be conflict? Well, certainly, biblically speaking, we know there's a demonic realm out there. And that, of course, is woven into the tapestry of the conflict. But for the main conflict of the story, the, the story is about the image bearers, beginning with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel onward, that we discover with each generation, there's a choice before them. Will you become the seed of the woman or will you become the seed of the serpent? Humans in part participation with right or wrong voices. Keep watching. Jesus does this too. Watch how Jesus reflects on this in John chapter eight. Context, scribes and Pharisees have had enough and there is a heated conversation. John chapter eight is off the charts, heated. If you hate conflict, you'll hate John chapter eight. But let's just go pick up in verse 37. Jesus answered them and said, I know, here's what he says to them, I know that you are the seed of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Here's the thing, I speak of what I've seen with my father and you speak of what you've heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, mm, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. So you can already see they're on a different interpretive level here. They've got like biology in mind and Jesus is like, let's go poetic on you, right? Watch. He says, um, you, you, would, you now seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. That's, that's not what Abraham did. You are doing the works, again, that your father did. And they said to him, hey, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, okay, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, <clears throat> the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Good grief. This is Jesus' fighting words. They're crazy. But do you see what he just did? He took, a, he took them back to the prophecy and he pointed out what's been there all along. The father of lies, the serpent, he's been whispering from the beginning and our lives are marked by the potential to learn his native language and to take up 
his deceptive character. And when we do that, it's as good as becoming serpent seed. That's precisely why Jesus is so intense, though. He's so frustrated with them because you forgot your job, you guys. You were supposed to rule over the beast of the field, the serpent, sin, lies, your own tongue, the plans of the enemy. But instead, you've called that creature father. How? By practicing his ways, by learning his native speech. Your tongue starts to fork. Your mouth is filled with venom, and you look just like that freaking snake. Sorry, I said freaking. There's kids in it. I don't know. And this is what James does. Not many of you should become teachers because that tongue, man, it's like a snake. It's restless. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. James goes on. Watch this. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So with some little more, more, more garden language here, James has bookended this section with an ideal picture. Remember, we all make mistakes, he says, but if you can find someone who bridles his tongue perfectly, you've got like the perfect person. It ends with this picture of fruit blossoming on vines and branches of its kind or springs yielding the right kind of water or whatever. And the point is this, good fruit comes from the person who's good. Blessing from the bridled tongue, the person with restraint. This is the person who refuses to curse God's image bearers. And to do otherwise, it, it's, it's, it's nonsensical if you curse and try to bless at the same time. It's like an olive from a fig tree. But what an ideal this is, you guys. It's like reading the Sermon on the Mount again. Is, like, is this possible? Right? You, you all know the feeling of saying raka in your heart. Man, if only we could look to a teacher who was a master of words, which were used to bless image bearers, who is able to withstand the judgment of the greatest strictness, who never succumbed to the temptation to become the seed of the serpent because he instead was the beloved seed of the father, who when faced with the test, listened to the voice of his father and ruled over that thing. So we're right back to Genesis, the Genesis prophecy again and now we're ready for the final promise. The final promise. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel. But who is the he? So in the grammar of the poem, he is a masculine pronoun, which refers back to its antecedent, which is the word seed. Does that work? You see it? Okay. That's a singular noun. Now in English, we should actually translate it as it, but Hebrew doesn't have an it. Um, it just has masculine and feminine conjugations. So Hebrew doesn't have the word it, so it says he, referring to the seed. So an interesting little promise is made. There will be generational conflict between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. But notice this, the conflict will not be resolved generationally, though that is what we would expect. So um, next slide. In the context of the poem, what we're expecting is for the poem to say, one day the seed of the woman will crush your seed. You're expecting that as you're reading the generations, but it doesn't. What does it say? It says that a future seed of the woman will not crush your seed, but instead he will crush you, the father of all this mess. Next slide. He will not come to destroy image bearers who decided to partner with the serpent and become the serpent seed. Do you get it? He's here to set the image bearers free by destroying the real villain, the father of lies, the serpent himself. That's why it says, that future one will crush you, the source of all of it. So the captives are set free. They're seed of the serpent no longer. That's the whole point. 
James opened his letter by telling us who he is. A servant, I'm a servant of God and the Lord, or master, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. King Jesus is what that translates as. I'm a servant of the king. What does it mean to be a king? The one who rules. He rules over the beast. And it's in his wonderful, kind, glorious, good dominion where we find our great salvation, our help, our example. That's what James is doing. So Jesus is the one who knows how to bridle the tongue. And when he does speak, it's nothing short of the beautiful kingdom of God. Matthew 7, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. His words bring life. The rod of his mouth, as Isaiah calls it, it strikes the earth. But the result is actually this unleashing of wisdom and righteousness and justice. That's what his words do. And so the good news for everyone and for teachers, thank God, is that Jesus is the head of the body. He is the word of the, the word of God. <laughs> thank God for Jesus. We are his offspring, his seed, sons and daughters of God, true seed of the woman, as we've now come to trust and follow him. So our task then is to fix our gaze on him. And as we're disciplined by him, sort of aligning our lives with his, he works out the poison of our tongues. He teaches me how to repair and ask my daughter's forgiveness when I am just disproportionately grumpy at bedtime. He strips the scales off us, those green slimy ones, where we've made poor partnerships with temptations and sins and lies in our past. And he ensures that we're brought into the glorious dignity for which we were made, rulers, kings and queens, image bearers of his image, the true son, the seed of the God who knows how to rule over the poisonous voices rather than being mastered by them and then burning up our whole lives in like hellish destruction. <laughs> so conclusion, um, man, I was so struck by, uh, uh, actually, sorry, um, yeah, okay, I'll just say this. I was so struck by Ellie Carlson's message a couple weeks ago with such grace, I thought she ushered in the conviction of James for us, um, just inviting us all to gather up the sin of favoritism within our hearts and just set it for God. But she ended it by reminding us that in our own lives where we've bought into the lies of being overlooked, where we actually wonder if God sees us, it, um, is, with us is with us if he cares for us, excuse me, she reminded us that Jesus does not participate in the sin of favoritism. For, for us, actually, he pulls out this chair at the head of the table. And this is how the good news works with the wisdom of like the Old Testament. You, have to, you put the Messiah like right in the flow and it changes everything on the other side. James comes to us again today to give us strong words, strong warning about our words, to be sure. In a culture of dishonor and um, cursing and blaming and polarization and vilification and slander, James says, watch your mouth. Like there's no question. It'll burn up your life. It'll shipwreck you. It'll shipwreck your friends. It'll shipwreck your family. Your words have consequence. And, but Jesus is here, and he comes to us with words of blessing and love because he actually has full bridle over his tongue. Um, he, he will not curse his image bearers. That's not what he does. He's here to set us free. And so, um, good thing. We have the spirit of Jesus to guide us into this new way of life. So I wanna just invite you all to stand for ministry time. Marshall, I wanna invite you up. Um, Josh, I wanna invite you up. <clears throat> I 
just want to say there's, um, there's grace and there's uh, life in the way of Jesus. It's like a true life that's extended for us all today again, and it's extended maybe for you for, for the first time. So as we move into this time, I just want to invite you guys to, to quiet your hearts, to hear from the Lord, and Marshall's going to lead us. Um, uh, but I just want to just pray um, and, and bless you and thank God. So God, thank you for, for uh, each person here. Um, thank you for your words, especially. More than anyone else's, God, we love the word of God, which is um, in, comes to us in so many forms, but most perfectly in the person of Jesus. So thank you, Lord. We bless your name. Amen.